What was that? I don't know. It's too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. Welcome back to Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bear cast. I'm your host, Phil Gonzalez, and this week, if you hear any noise in the background, it's because there are three distinct activities happening in my house right now, a meeting in the room next to me, and a piano lesson going on downstairs. So I'm going to do my best to shut out all that sound in this episode, and you might not be able to tell there's anything going on, but boy, oh boy, I sure can. But that is beside the point. What isn't beside the point is that this is a super hefty episode, not by necessity, but by my own just sheer cussed-mindedness. There are so many things I want to talk about relating to this week's book, and surprisingly, they all kind of tie in together. This isn't a situation where I'm just being deliberately difficult for the sake of my listeners. This is a situation where I was researching the topics at hand, and I found out that they actually overlapped. That is right. There is relevance to myself, I guess, in this episode. And what is this episode? What is this week's book? This week's book is a Living Lights faith story, uh, Zonder Kids' Wonderful Adventure by Mike Berenstain, and it is the Berenstain Bears' Blessed Are the Peacemakers from 2014, a Berenstain Publishing Incorporated production based on characters created by Stan and Jan Berenstain. It's Berenstain Bears' Blessed Are the Peacemakers, and it begins with a little quote, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That's Matthew 5.9, one of the Beatitudes, uh, and it is actually very relevant to the book because that's what this book is about. Blessed are the peacemakers. But what it, what actually are peacemakers? What does it mean when they say that blessed that when 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 Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is shouting out his sermon on the mount and he gets to blessed are the peacemakers, what is he actually saying? What's a peacemaker? Well, what's funny is uh several of the sources I look at go out of their way to to specify that a peacemaker is someone who brings about peace in the middle of a time of strife, which is funny because I just assumed that's what a peacemaker was. I, th- I thought a peacemaker was literally someone who made peace. Turns out it is. That's what it is. There's, a, there, there's. I guess, I guess because the 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 quote is used out of context a lot uh, to mean a pacifist, like someone who does not take place in. Uh, in in conflict at all, when when in fact the I, the concept is that there are moments of conflict, whether they are good good for good reasons or bad, where someone needs to step in and and negotiate some kind of peace, some kind of a settlement, and that and that the people who do that will will, will be blessed because they are the children of God. Not really sure what that part means, but blessed are these peacemakers and blessed are the cubs in this week's book because it's all about making peace. And this also, there's also something else in this book that I have to talk about. So we're blessing the peacemakers, but we're also talking about theater again, because this is one of those books where we find out that there's nothing in bear country quite like the local school production of Shakespeare. We also bring back some favorite characters 
Uh, we bring back some favorite relationships, and I have a personal story to tell that ties directly into this. So let's get started, because my voice is already half shot. So it's it's Bear Country School. And now the opening paragraph of this book uh, uses the word most three times, which I like. It's a little, I don't know, It's it, it made me laugh. The Bear Country School was mostly a peaceful sort of place. Most of the cubs got along with each other most of the time. True, there could be minor squabbles. Voices were sometimes raised. Angry words were sometimes spoken. But most of the time, most of the cubs were calm and peaceful, except for two tall grizzly and his gang. So we have a little painting, uh, a, 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 a painting of words of Bear Country School. And we already see some returning characters. We see Ferdy Factual, we see Trudy Brunowitz, and we see Susie, I believe. Susie is one of the one of the kids uh, in the background here. We have Cousin Fred, we have Scuzz, Smirk, Vinny, and Tuta. Wait, do we have Scuzz, Smirk, and Vinny? Or do we just have Scuzz and Smirk? We just have Scuzz and Smirk. Vinny is not there. We have Queenie McBear. We just got loads of characters returning in this book who characters we don't we hadn't seen in picture books for a long time. But now we have Trudy and Ferdy together again. So the last time we really talked about Trudy and Ferdy uh, were was back in the in the chapter books where they were sort of a uh, they were they were friends. But there was a mutual attraction between the two of them, them both being nerds. Uh, and this book establishes that Trudy, Ferdy, and Cousin Fred all hang out as a as a clique, as a group. It says, uh, Ferdy Factual and his... Ferdy was one of the best students in the school. His friends were cubs like Cousin Fred and Trudy Brunowitz, who were good students just like him. I appreciate my going out of the way just not to say because the nerds stuck together for strength. Strength in, strength in numbers. Uh, the nerds The nerds have to band together or they will be pummeled by Tutal and his gang, who in this book, I am happy to report, is back to being a bit of a bully, a bit of a sh- a, a bit of a loudmouth, uh, a bit of a shove him about, and a bit of a ladies' man, because he is boyfriends once again with Queenie McBear, who is also a bit of a bully in this book. So we we talk about the fact that there are conflicts at school anyway. Sometimes cubs yell at each other, sometimes they say dirty words at each other, words like so what? And who cares? Eh? Things get spicy, a little spicy on the playground, uh, but that it's really too tall who is the instigator of a lot of the madness that goes on in Bear Country School because he's a troublemaker. Uh, he pushes kids around. We see uh, we see Smirk shoving a boy in the back. Uh, we see Queenie sticking out her tongue at a cub on the playground. And they really do not like Ferdy Factual and his gang because, once again, they are nerds. Nerds? They are nerds. Uh, they don't get along. The two groups don't get along. However, there's a the weird part of this book is that we are given uh, we are given the the we are presented with the scenario that Tutal and his gang and Ferdy and his group are equal players in this. Like they are equally antagonistic towards each other. So that's the establishment. Okay, we've established our setting: Bear Country School, a land of arguments. Tutal Grizzly, Ferdy Factual, blood enemies. Constantly at each other's throats. All right, set that aside. Boom. Now, another setup. We then move on to establish that one of the biggest events in Bear Country is the all-school play. I don't know what that means. I don't know what they mean by all-school play. I, I guess that's to differentiate between, like, just the drama club plays, but I don't think there's a drama club at Bear Country School. 
and there's only like 50 students. I assume that every play is an all-school play, but in any case, it's the biggest event of the year. Bears come from all over bear country to see the all-school play. We see, uh, we see, it looks like Gus is directing traffic onto the lawn of Bear Country School. It looks like Farmer and Mrs. Ben have shown up, didn't even bother to change out of their farming clothes. Everyone else looks like they're wearing hats, suits, and, and smocks, but Farmer Ben and Mrs. Ben still wearing their, their dirty, their dirty sheep-smelling, dung-smelling, hay-covered clothes. Uh, they don't know anything about legitimate theater. They're just happy to be there. Now, that's just your setup. There's your context. Bear Country loves a play. They love a play. And then it's like, okay, but that's that's beside the point. We're not watching the play yet. What we're watching is auditions for this year's play, which is, and here's my next big topic that we have to discuss, Romeo and Grizzlyette by William Shakespeare. Romeo and Grizzlyette is, you may not know this, it's a joke on a play, a real play, called Romeo and Juliet by a playwright named William Shake Sphere, uh, that he wrote, wrote some, like, no one really, of course, knows, like, exactly what year Shakespeare wrote his plays, but, uh, it's believed that he wrote it, uh, Sometime like in, uh, 1591 to 1595, like sometime in between there. And the way they the way they date some of these things, because there's not a whole lot of like contemporary uh, like resources, like people writing people just didn't write about going to see plays that often. Uh, certainly not Shakespeare's plays, uh, even though this was a popular one. But there's references to uh, an earthquake from 11 years prior which most likely refers to an earthquake known as the Dover Straits earthquake of 1580, which would put the writing at 1591. Uh, however, there's other earthquakes that that happened in England and also in Verona. So who knows? But if 1591 to 1595, uh, those are the dates that we that we we kind of get. Now, Shakespeare was already a bit of an established, a bit of an established writer at this point. Uh, but Romeo and Juliet was super successful. It got a lot of productions at the time and it gets a lot of productions today. I still I think it's one of the most, if not the most produced Shakespeare play, uh, mostly because of how often it is done, as the bears will show you, in schools. Now, if you want a little history of Romeo and Juliet, there's a fine movie you can watch called Shakespeare in Love that I I am like the only person on earth who doesn't like Shakespeare in Love. And the reason I don't like Shakespeare in Love is because I cannot get past the admittedly goofy premise. I'm usually not a stickler for premises, but the premise of Shakespeare in Love is like, well, since we don't know where Shakespeare got his ideas from, we can make up whatever we want and tell this hilarious story about how he's trying to write this play called Romeo and Ethel, and he is things happen in his life that end up inspiring the plot of Romeo and Juliet, except for the fact that we know where William Shakespeare got the idea for Romeo and Juliet. He got it from the tragic, what is it? The tragic history of Romeo and Juliet. Like, Romeo and Juliet, besides being blatantly inspired by the Pyramus and Thisbe story, which Shakespeare also used in A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, from from Ovid's Metamorphosis, Metamorphoses, not Metamorphosis, that's the other story, from Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, Romeo and Juliet actually goes way back. Uh, I believe that the earliest... So they said the earliest known version of Romeo and Juliet, the the the, the, the rough outline of the story, goes back to 1476. Uh, the story of Mariotto and Ganozza by Masuccio Salernitano. 
uh, in in the in the thirty third novel of his Il Novellino, published in fourteen seventy six. Uh, and that's the story of you know young lovers, secret marriage. Uh, Friar helps them get married. Uh, someone gets killed in the public square. Uh, the main guy gets exiled. She's forced to marry someone else. There's poison. Uh, and uh, and there's a misunderstanding that results in the tragedy. Uh, except that in in this version, I guess the Romeo character is is executed <laughs> and not and not uh, and doesn't poison himself. And Juliet character uh, dies of grief. Uh, and then in uh, in in the late 1400s, there is this version called Julieta e Romeo, which is an adaptation, uh, like a prose adaptation, which also draws on Pyramus and Thisbe and Boccaccio's Decameron. Uh, but then there's another version, like there's another version that's uh, in, in 1554, uh, Julieta e Romeo. Um, and then in 1562, there was a narrative poem by Arthur Brooke called The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet, which is actually a, a translation of an earlier poem uh, by Pierre Boistuau in 1559. Uh, and, but it was published like as an Arthur Brooke. They, it became very, uh, very popular, the Arthur Brooke uh, adaptation, which was an adaptic. He translated it, but he also like added it in his own, his own uh, like flair. So that, in addition to 1567's uh, collection of Italian stories called Palace of Pleasure by William Painter, were most likely what William Shakespeare read, then drew on uh, to create the play Romeo and Juliet. Right, because uh, because it was the Painter ver- uh, collection that was called The Goodly History of the True and Constant Love of Romeo and Juliet. So that changed Romeus to Romeo. So in the, at the in the end, it's a, it was a common enough story that had been recently ish translated into English uh, and published in England that that Shakespeare drew on. And if you don't know the story, it's a story of a, of a young boy and a young girl, like literally young. She's like twelve years old, uh, who who bump into each other at a party, immediately fall in love, as only kids that young will do. Uh, secretly get married because their families hate each other, and the and the and Romeo's buddy, who's a friar, thinks that by getting them married to each other, it will bring the families together. But she's betrothed to another guy. Uh, Romeo accidentally kills someone in a fight, so he gets exiled. Juliet decides that she'll get Romeo back by pretending to be dead. Uh, so she pretends to be dead. Her, the goal is for her to pretend to be dead. Romeo will come back, uh, and then the two of them can sneak off together. Unfortunately, the the message gets to Romeo that Juliet's actually dead. He shows up at her crypt, kills himself. She wakes up, kills herself. The families burst in. Uh, they realize they've been stupid for fighting this whole time, and they all become friends again. Now, that is not the point of the original story. The original story was all about listen to your parents, like literally. Like if you read... The original poem, the whole introduction is about this is a tragedy because these kids wouldn't listen to their parents. Uh, Shakespeare turned it on its head and made it listen to your kids. Like, don't be stupid. You are the adults. It's your responsibility to take care of your children. The tragedy came about because these kids loved each other and the parents were being dumb butts and fighting for no reason. Romeo and Juliet. So that becomes uh, a very popular play. It's very popular in high school. It's usually the first play that of Shakespeare's that children read in public school, uh, which is appropriate, even though it's a little highfalutin in its language at times. It's not the easiest Shakespeare play to read, but it's not the hardest. It's not like, 
you know, one of the histories or like Richard III, which is so long for no reason. But it's very relatable for kids because, as I said earlier, it's the only... The oldest these characters should ever be is like maybe 15 years old. Like there comes a point in your life where you are too old to meet someone at a party, get married like the next day and then uh, die for that person because you're so in love with them. Like you get to a certain age, you get you, you, you're able to slam on the brakes a little bit better. It's only at this very young age that everything is life or death. And you definitely would die for someone you just met two days ago just because she happened to be cute, even though you were literally in love with another woman before you went to that party, which is what happens in Romeo and Juliet. Don't, don't forget, he spends most of the plot, the beginning, talking about his true love, Rosaline. He's a he's a kid. They're kids. So when I see productions that cast adults in the leads, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Adults I mean, adults do behave this way sometimes, but the tragedy is that they're children. I don't know. In any case, if you're doing Romeo and Juliet, cast young. And if you're trying to get kids to read it, just tell them it's about kids. Like, it's about them. It's about teenagers. Being, being dorks, because that's what it's about. The dorkiest of dorks. So anyway, uh, Bear Country School is doing a version of this, and the kids are excited. Uh, even Tutal and his gang show up for auditions. Uh, and finally, they, they announce, that they sort of brush over the auditions, but uh, brother and sister get cast, but in just small, like, townspeople roles. The roles of Romeo and Grizzlyette, though, go to the most unexpected people. Uh, Grizzlyette is Queenie McBear, and Romeo is Ferdy Factual. Now, we don't, don't forget, we have established in the past that Ferdy Factual is actually a pretty good poet and a pretty good performer. So this doesn't come as much of a shock. What comes more of a shock to me is that Queenie McBear gets cast as Juliet because Juliet is supposed to be like the youngest person in the play. Like she is supposed to be very young looking uh, because she's supposed to be 12. Queenie just comes across as so much older. She's taller than all the other bears. She's more physically imposing than all the other bears. I don't know. It's weird to me that they cast Queenie, but you'll see that for plot reasons, they cast Queenie. Uh, and the plot reasons are that Tutal is now jealous. He warns Ferdy to not get handsy with his Goyle during rehearsals. Uh, and Trudy stands up for Ferdy, and Queenie stands up against Trudy, and then everyone starts pushing and shoving each other in the middle of the theater. People. Just because you get cast in a scene together doesn't mean you're going to fall in love. Just because you're playing Romeo to someone else's Juliet doesn't mean that her boyfriend needs to get jealous and get all chest puffy about it. But that did happen to me. So here's my anecdote. Eighth grade theater. I'm at the top of my game. Eighth grade, uh, I, I, that's when I peaked. That's where Phil Gonzalez uh, hit, his, hit, the, hit the summit and it was all downhill from there. So it's eighth grade. Uh, we are doing a Shakespeare scene study and our teacher pairs us up and assigns us scenes. I don't remember any anyone's scenes except my friend David and my friend Dale did a scene from Julius Caesar together. I remember that. I remember that. I get teamed up with a girl named Shelley and we are given the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, as opposed to the balcony scene from something else. Now, Shelley is... I mean, she's an eighth grade girl like I am. Or, or, I'm not an eighth grade girl. I'm eighth grade. She's an eighth grader. She's, I don't know, I guess cute, blonde. Like, I didn't really know Shelly that well. We were just in the same theater class together. We were in a bunch of classes together, actually. But we weren't like friends. Uh, we'd known each other, I guess, since like seventh grade. But uh, 
Uh, it, this was just a pro, like, you know, we're just doing a scene study. It's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and it's the balcony scene. Remember, Romeo and Juliet don't really get physical in the play because, of course, originally Juliet was played by a young man. Uh, but Romeo and Juliet, like, there's, like, he kisses her hand a few times. Like, that's it. It's very chaste on stage. I mean, obviously, they seal the deal later on. That's gross. I'm sorry I said it that way. They do seal the deal, they get married. But that doesn't happen, like, on stage. This isn't a Zeffirelli film. So, which apparently the two lead actors were super uncomfortable doing, uh, by the way. Uh, what were they talking about? Oh, yes. So I get cast in the SEAL scene study with Shelley, and we rehearse over the phone, because that's what you do. And uh, and I talked to her one day, because we were also allowed to rehearse during class. And she had been dating this guy who she dated through, I think, all of junior high, named Chris. Don't you are you guys getting the hot goss, by the way, about Dory Intermediate Love uh, from 1989? She had been dating this guy named Chris, who was a football player, very tall. Uh huh. Some might say he was too tall, very tall. Guy looked like a 20 year old uh, to me, at least. Like he was that one. He was the eighth grader who looked way older than he was. And he was built like a linebacker. It's this huge blonde. He looked like Drago from Rocky IV. He was this Aryan youth. And he wasn't actually an Aryan youth. But he looked like what? Well, he looked like a propaganda poster. In my mind's eye. In my memory. Uh, and they were together. They were serious for eighth graders. Like, when we went on the eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C., they illegally went into a room together. No boys were supposed to be in girls' rooms. And Dale, the aforementioned Dale, by the way, who uh, did the scene from Julius Caesar with my friend David, uh, stood guard outside their door in case any teachers came by so that they could seal the deal. So Shelly's my scene partner. And one day she comes up to me, or she doesn't come up to me, we're working on the scene, and she said, oh, Chris talked to me the other day. And I was like, well, of course he did. He's your boyfriend. And she said, I didn't say that. I was like, uh-huh. And she's like, he's not happy that we're doing Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, he asked me straight out, are you falling in love with Phil? And in the K, and I'm like eighth grade Phil Gonzalez, which is basically like modern Phil Gonzalez, except with a lower self-esteem. And I was like, ha okay. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. Like, why would he think that? Like, it's a play. Like, you just, you get assigned a role. Like, it doesn't, it, it's not a magic, it's not a spell. So he asks her, you're not falling, you're not falling for that Phil guy, are you, or something? And she went, and so I told him, of course not. I could never fall for Phil, which she said to me as a way of being like, so I reassured him, you know, of course I'm not going to like, Fall for Phil Gonzalez. They didn't call me Phil back then, of course. They called me Philip. I'm not going to fall for Philip Gonzalez. And of course, in my heart, like, breaks. Not because I was attracted to Shelly or wanted her to be attracted to me, but because, like, it's that thing where, like, people are like, don't worry, I could never be attracted to you because you're gross. Uh, so we did the we did the scene, and I got high grade on it. Uh, by the way, my uh, eighth grade uh, uh, teacher liked the way I mimed climbing over the wall. He was like, ooh, you didn't have to go that far, but you did it. Because I included the line from the beginning of the scene that's actually a response to the guys from the previous scene, where Romeo says, he jests at scars that never felt a wound. Which doesn't have anything to do with the scene as we're heading into it, but I thought it would give like Romeo a good like impetus to like get over the wall because he's just trying to get away from his from his friends who are giving him a hard time. Uh, and then we start, but soft. I'd like the yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is. I enjoyed doing that scene with Shelley. It was it was it was fun. Uh, the reason I tell that story is, of course, that's the same thing as happening with Too Tall and Queenie. Too Tall gets jealous because Romeo and Juliet. 
Too tall is Queenie's Chris. Queenie is Chris's Shelly. That's all I'm saying. I'm just, I just, guys, I want you guys to know that I can relate to this children's book from 2014. Uh, so people start shoving and pushing and creating a ruckus, right? In the in the theater. And uh, Brother Bear jumps up and, stu- and quells the fight. Break it up, he says. And Sister gets between Queenie and Trudy. Brother gets between Too Tall and Ferdy. Then Cousin Fred pipes up. Remember, this is a Living Lights book. And he says, let's remember what it says in the Bible. This is my Cousin Fred voice. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And Too Tall's like, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand what that means. And Ferdy says, it means that if you make peace, you'll get a rich reward. Peacemakers who sow in peace. And you know what? Is that what it means? Because that sounds a little too pat. Peacemakers who sow in peace. Uh, That's from James 3.18. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Huh? Yes? Huh? What does that mean? Well, I don't know. But it sounds nice. And for the factual, I think, you know, it sounds okay. Let me, let's break it down. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace. All right. So if you break up fights, you are planting the seeds of peace. That makes sense. And they will reap a harvest. Okay. Following it so far. Of righteousness. So in peace, they'll reap a harvest of right. I think that makes sense. And the fruit of right. So you've 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 harvested your righteousness, like which comes in the form of t- delicious fruit, I guess. And the fruit of righteousness is then sown into peace by those who cultivate. So I think it's saying that like it's a we. It's like a cyclical process. If you if you if you plant the seeds of peace, you're going to reap righteousness. Will then cause you to sow more peace. And will allow you to cultivate more peace. Like you'll just, you'll, it'll keep going, I guess is what they say. Like all it takes is a peacemaker to step in. So Ferdy and Cousin Fred are wrong. It doesn't mean you'll get a rich reward. It means that if you're a peacemaker, you're beginning the cycle of peace, which is nice, which is a nice thing. I think that's what it means. Uh, which is not what they're trying to get across to. They're wrong. They're wrong in what they're saying to Too Tall. Like they're building up brother with this quote. They're saying, well, what brother's doing is awesome. Well, Too Tall doesn't care anyway because he just says, well, stay away from Queenie unless you're rehearsing the play. And Queenie's like, I can take care of myself. So they rehearse the story of Romeo and Grizzlelet. And I love the, there's a, there's a brief synopsis of Romeo and Grizzlelet here. There were, uh, Romeo and Grizzlelet was quite an exciting story. It's about two families who did not get along at all. But when a boy and a girl from each family fell in love and wanted to get married, the two families became even angrier. A big fight broke out with sword fighting and everything. That's it. That's how they don't they don't follow through to the end. What happens at the end? But Queenie and Ferdy are getting along. You see Ferdy goofing around. Uh, Queenie's impressed with Ferdy. He's a good actor. And then it's the opening night. Everyone shows up. Uh, Mayor, Mrs. Honeypot. Preacher Brown and his wife, and even Squire and Lady Grizzly, who could probably afford to go see a real play. Uh, it's going on pretty well. And then we get to the balcony scene, which I am a little miffed about. It says there's four sword fighting galore, but it says in the middle of the play, Romeo and Grizzlyette, does it say Grizzlyette or Grizzlyette? Grizzlyette stood on a balcony to say how much they loved each other, which isn't really what happens. Uh... The balconies, if they're referring to the balcony scene, uh, the balcony scene is actually where they first, where they first meet, like uh, not meet, but, uh, uh, I guess it is like they do, they do say that they're not, I guess it depends on how you play it. I don't know. 
uh, I don't think of that as the point of the scene. It's it's the scene where they like test each other, where they really get to know each other. Uh, she's testing Romeo's basically his like his devotion and his intellect because we already they already know they love each other. Uh, and Romeo is professing his, his devotion to her. In fact, he's, uh, you know, he promises to come, to come back to her and she makes him swear to some, like she tests him to see what he's going to swear by because she wants someone who's going to be a, a, a a good provider for this 12 year old. Uh, uh, it's the famous balcony scene. So, you know, maybe they've edited it down. I'm not sure. What, what matters is that they do their job so well as actors that, uh, uh Tutal gets jealous, starts climbing up to the balcony, and you see him like trying to climb up the 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 like the the flat that like the the castle is painted on. Uh, and I'm like, Tui should know that this is just going to either rip that flat right down the middle or knock over the scenery. But it doesn't get that far because a fist fight starts on stage. Uh, Tutal's gang rushes the stage. Uh, Ferdy Factual's gang rushes the stage. Everyone starts punching. Uh, the families get angry and they start punching each other. Parents rush the stage. You see two ton uh, egging on a couple of kids who are shoving each other. Two talls jumping off the balcony to chase after Ferdy Factual. Uh, Mama and Papa Bear, who also didn't get dressed up to come see this show, uh, are just like sort of gazing at each other like goggle eyed. And it's actually the hero of the story. Isn't brother, isn't mama, isn't papa, isn't even Preacher Brown. The hero of the story, the person who jumps up on stage and breaks everything up, who shouts, stop this disgraceful brawling at once, you should all be ashamed of yourselves, is a man who should probably be ashamed of himself, himself, uh, Squire Grizzly. That's right, the richest bear in bear country, the billionaire who lives on top of a hill, the man who hoards his wealth, but will only pay to go see a elementary school production of Shakespeare because he's too cheap to buy tickets to a real show, jumps up on stage and demands everyone's attention. Stop this disgraceful brawling. I don't know why Mike chose Squire Grizzly for this part. He's not a righteous character. More often than not, he's some borderline antagonist who's uh, who's disdainful of the poor and whose wife barely seems to tolerate him. Also, he's wearing jodhpurs and riding boots. I don't know what's up with this guy. Uh, but him jumping up and breaking up the fight seems to have really puzzled Tutud, who's just staring at him with a, he's scratching his noggin. So, Tutal's like, it all started with, and Squire Grizzly's like, there's never any, okay, I don't want to hear any name calling and there'll be no excuses. There's never an excuse for starting a fight. And Preacher Brown jumps in and says, that's right, remember what the Bible says, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And I'm like, hold on a second. There is nothing in the Bible. There is no place in the Bible that says anything about there never being an excuse for starting a fight. May I remind you that Moses himself murdered a slave driver to save someone. That's kind of a big fight. Might I remind you that Jesus Christ trashed the merchant's tables in the temple turned over the tables and swatted and switched at all the money sellers, money changers, uh, because he got so mad. That's a fight. Uh, may I remind you of every single God-approved war in the Bible. Uh, King David, who was quite 
the fighter in the in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, the, everyone who ever killed anyone in the Bible and was hailed as a hero for it, never an excuse for starting a fight. Which brings me to my next point. Blessed are the peacemakers formed the basis of uh, Thomas Aquinas's theory of, and this will mean a lot if you happen to listen to my podcast, Pizza Toast, that I do with Christy Admiral, where we just started this week, The Hunger Games. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers was the basis of Thomas Aquinas's theory of the just war. And the just war theory, the just war theory is the theory that at times it is okay to go to war and have a big fight if the result of that war is greater peace for everyone. Uh, There are just wars that you that you sometimes have to fight. And Thomas Aquinas did a lot of uh, a lot of philosophizing on that very point. But it was based Blessed are the peacemakers, that philosophy saying not blessed are the people who never fight, but blessed are the people who know how to step into a fight and negotiate peace and bring about peace. Those are the blessed people, though, because and that statement in in enveloped in that statement is the understanding that there are times when fighting must occur. And so it's weird, not weird. I mean, it's a children's book about a bunch of bears who live in a town made up of bears and they're doing a play about bears. And the preacher is a bear. Uh, Preacher, it's just, it is weird that Preacher Brown is like, yeah, he's right. Don't ever fight. Because that's not any, the Bible never says it. The Bible makes it very clear that there are times, there is a time for war and a time for peace. Like it is, it is very clear on those points. It's one thing that no one's ever really tried to argue is that the Bible is not a big fan of, conflict because it really is a big fan of conflict the bible is a really big fan of getting things done god is all about getting things done in the bible so i don't know but preacher brown says turn from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it and that which is a fine enough thing especially to tell a bunch of kids who have literally stopped to play to punch each other on stage in front of the audience well everyone feels foolish as well they should brother and sister help everyone get back to their seats so there's a little audience participation here uh, no one calls the police and everyone's fine with each other now. Like parents were just like smacking kids off the stage and no one's mad at each other anymore, which I just find hilarious. So they finished the play and it's great. And they all bow and everyone's friends again, just because the preacher Brown stood up and like wave, wave the threatened them with the Bible, which is very funny. Uh, and, it, and, and I do appreciate the ending. It says that after the play was done, things were different between the two gangs. Uh, they never became, it says they never became best buds. But now there was peace between them. and the peace loving peacemakers, brother and sister bear, were good friends to them all as usual, because it talks about how brother and sister don't want to be on either side. They want to be friends with everyone. They're they're real centrists, those cubs. Uh, uh, but it is. I do appreciate the fact that they have kept that Mike recognizes brother's role as a middleman, as a peacemaker. That's always been brother's weakness and his strength throughout the course of these books. Uh, from the beginning when he tolerated Papa Bear's shenanigans through the chapter books where he was always the, the the cub who didn't really know what he wanted to do. He was very afraid to take action. Well, has sort of matured into a bear who sits still sits in the middle of things, but uh, has, has sort of developed his skills as a negotiator, as a bringer of peace, as a 
uh, a peacemaker, perhaps? Uh, is Brother Bear destined to be our Christ figure? I guess we'll find out in the final book whenever Mike writes it. Will Brother Bear die and be resurrected? We'll find out. Will he, we find out he's actually a sentient AI? Maybe. I don't know. Who knows what the last book will be? But I hope it involves Brother being a sentient AI. Activities and questions from Brother and Sister Bear. Talk about it. Remember, it's a religious book, so we get to talk about it. Why do you think Too Tall and his gang did not always get along with Ferdy Factual and his friends? D oh, well, be because nerds and bullies don't mix. It's like oil and water. Bullies don't... Bullies and nerds, they can't be in the same... They'll, like... It'll be like, a the end of time cop. When what's-his-face touched himself and he dissolved. It'd be like that if, if Too Tall and Ferdy got along, they'd cancel each other out. Two. How did brother and sister act as peacemakers for their friends and the Bear Country community uh, by getting in the middle of fights and by sort of playing the center by being friends with both groups so they carry equal weight within the groups. They don't like to choose sides, which can be seen as a weakness, like I said, but also is a good negotiating tactic. And I see that in a situation like this where there are two groups who are constantly at odds with each, with each other, there does need to be people sitting, in this, sitting outside of both, I won't even say in the center, sitting outside of both groups willing to talk to the leaders of both groups who command the same respect from each group so that they are equally listened to no matter who they're talking to and who won't lose credibility by talking to the other groups. Like, it's interesting that brother and sister don't lose their credibility with Tutal by being friends with Ferdy and Trudy and vice versa. So three, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Uh, it Well, I think we established this. It is someone who, in times of conflict can, has the authority and the ability, this is just my definition, to step in and negotiate peace and not tell people just to stop fighting, but to figure out what they're fighting about and see if there's a way they can each get what they want or an equivalent of what they want. That's what a peacemaker is supposed to do. It's not someone who just stops, strong arms their way to stopping the fight. It's someone who is actually makes peace because they're a peacemaker now name two people you know who could be called peacemakers and talk about why they are two people i know who are peacemakers oh my goodness oh my goodness gracious okay so i have a friend haven't talked to him in a while named lee i'll just leave it up people who know lee know lee uh he was always a really good peacemaker. Uh, he liked to step into the middle of conflict and try to help people figure out what it was that was going on. He, I used to work with him. He was very good at that. His, he, he saw it kind of as a little bit of his calling. You know, a religious guy, uh, a, a, a peaceful guy, a, a highly intelligent guy, a uh, good guy, great guy. Can't say enough great things about him. Uh, wonderful, wonderful peacemaker at work. So he's one. Wow. Who's another peacemaker? Do I know any? It's so hard. I don't, I tend to avoid conflict. So, uh, so I, 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 I'm going to leave that. I'll leave that one up to you. Who's your peacemaker? Who do you know? Who's, if you know a peacemaker, go on Twitter at Beastain Bearcast, go on Facebook at Deep in Bear Country, or go to BerenstainBearcast.org and leave a comment on this episode. Who's the peacemaker in your life? What does it mean for someone to be a peacemaker? Serious answers only, huh? Who's the serious peacemaker in your life? Who do you know? I want to find out. I love hearing about positive stuff. Positive peacemakers. Get out and do it. As a family, create and paint a peace pole. 
Hold on real quick. Peace. I don't know what a peace pole is. Peace pole. Oh, those. Oh, I know what a peace pole is. Sure, I've seen these things. Uh, oh, it's, it's and then I, I should have, I literally should have read three more words. On a four-sided wooden pole, paint the words, may peace prevail on earth in four different languages, one on each side. Place the pole in your yard or garden. May peace prevail on earth. And where do peace poles come from? Does anyone know? Does anyone know the history of the peace pole? Uh, peace pole. Looks like uh, it came out the mas, mas, ma, I'm going to get this. I'm going to mangle this name. Masahisa Goi in 1955 in Japan thought up the peace pole. Uh, the Peace Pole Project is promoted by the World Peace Prayer Society. Uh, I guess, yeah, it's a, somewhat religious, I guess. Uh, it looks like, Ma- I don't know how to say this person's name, Masahisa Goi um, founded the World Peace Prayer Society, WPPS, as a non-sectarian pacifist organization. Uh, its motto is, may pre- peace prevail on earth. Yeah, and they and they kicked off the Peace Pole thing. It looks like there's a lot of resources about Peace Poles if you want to learn more. Uh, according to worldpeace.org, uh, a peace pole is an internationally recognized symbol of the hopes and dreams of the entire human family, standing vigil in silent prayer for peace on earth. And regardless of what you think of the effectiveness of the, uh, of, of a project like this, if you're cynical about it, if you're all into it, I really hope that the fact that Mike Berenstain, uh, suggests creating a peace pole at the end of his book, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, which is about the glory of having people in your midst who are willing to negotiate peace in times of conflict, uh, gives gives the lie to the to the to the notion that I still hear repeatedly that Mike's some kind of weirdo hate monger because he creates religious books. Because there's something just doggone pure of heart about just telling kids to go out and make peace poles and put them in your yard, put them in your garden as a standing prayer for peace on earth because good night like that's a that's a that's a i just gotta say i got that's a whew okay anyway two create a family peacemaker award design a necklace with a large cardboard circle as a medal and attach it to a ribbon work with everyone in the family to set up guidelines for awarding the family peacemaker award once a week for a month did someone keep the peace during a family or brother and sister disagreement did someone lend a helping hand at just the right time which Again, goes towards what I always say, which is, if you want someone who puts their money where their mouth is, look at Mike Berenstain, who is constantly traveling around promoting the charitable work that the Berenstain organization does uh, around the world. And I like that he 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 says that someone, not just someone who breaks up an argument or negotiates peace, but also someone just who helps out, because helping out is a way of making peace. You make peace by being kind. And what do the Berenstain Bears stand for above all else? Kindness. Not being nice all the time. Not never getting in fights. But, oh, at the end of the day, acting with a great sense of kindness toward your fellow bear. That's what the Berenstain Bears are all about. Being kind, being good. You know, complain about the the you know, the stereotype gender roles in the earlier books. Complain about the fact that Mike Berenstain, a Christian man writes Christian books for a solely Christian publisher, then they clearly labels those books on the covers. Complain about that all you want, but you can't, you cannot say that the Berenstain Bears are not about kindness because they certainly are. Sometimes the messaging stumbles along the way. Sometimes they don't always hit the mark, but at the end of the day, that's the message. Be kind. 
for God's sake, children, you gotta be kind uh, and make peace because those people are blessed. Uh, they won't inherit the earth. No, no, they'll enjoy something else. Uh, I don't remember what they'll enjoy. What will the peacemakers enjoy? Oh, they'll just be called the children of God. Thanks, peacemakers. You're my kids. That's what God's going to say, I guess. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for putting up with my rambling ambling. Uh, don't forget to listen to Pizza Toast, where we're covering for the next eight episodes, maybe, or something. Uh, the Hunger Games books and movies. There's four movies. There's four books. But not each movie is based on, or not each book has been turned into a movie. There's two movies for one of the books. Anyway, it's a long story. Tune into It's Del Toro Time, where Willow and I are discussing the short stories out of the second volume of David G. Hartwell's The Dark Descent, The Medusa in the Shield. We just did Stephen King's The Monkey. Uh, so if you want to hear us talk about a monkey that plays the cymbals and then bad things happen, listen to that episode. Otherwise, find me on Twitter at Beast Bearcast. Find me on Facebook at Deep in Bear Country. Or find me on, uh, just go to bearstainbearcast.org and leave a message about the peacemakers in your life. That Do that, do that. Or do it on Facebook or Twitter, like I said. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for supporting me with your kind, kind eyes, I guess. Uh, and I'll see you all next time. Deep in their country.